0: Today I'm going to talk a little bit about gen- gender and nationalism in relation to Buddhist practice in China. So um, in October 2017, at the 19th Congress of the Chinese Communist Party, Xi Jinping offered his three-plus hour-long defense of his vision for what he called the Chinese, called the Chinese dream. And after this there was responses from various voices in what you might call China's civil society. Uh, one such voice was that of Venerable Master Xuecheng, Chief Abbot of Longchuan Monastery in suburban Beijing, as well as the President of the Buddhist Association of China. And he wrote an article in Zhongguo Minzu Bao, China Nationalities Daily, which is kind of the party mouthpiece for ethnic and religious policy. He wrote, Only by always holding high the great banner of patriotism and religious love, Ai Guo Ai Jiao, can we ensure that the cause of Buddhism will move in the right direction. He declared his view that Buddhism could contribute to the Chinese dream of the great rejuvenation of the Chinese nation. This statement came in the wake of Xi Jinping's apparent interest in using Asian religion, as he calls it, especially Buddhism and Taoism as sources of Chinese Communist Party legitimacy, as well as Chinese soft power. Meanwhile, in China's regulated yet still raucous social media sphere, Humorous, cynical memes observe Chinese millennials Buddha-like acquiescence to the competitive nature of contemporary Chinese society. And this one reads, this is for you, Matt. It says, Buddha-like child rearing. Not many children will amount to much, so why give them an exhausting childhood? (laughs) (laughs) Um, These two tendencies seem to capture the polar extremes of a revived Buddhist life in 21st century China. A monk with close ties to the putatively atheistic party state states his support of its nationalistic goal of rejuvenation. On the other hand, Buddhist concepts enter the popular parlance as a way of helping neoliberal subjects cope with their individual's lives and individualized lives and destinies. In this paper, I examine the potential for a third way, for Buddhist practice and identity to also create divergent subjectivities and thus alternative nationalist identities. There's no doubt that nationalism is central to the contemporary project of the Chinese Communist Party to maintain power, particularly forms of cultural nationalism. Peter Hayes-Grees adopts a useful social psychological approach to national identity, defining it as that aspect of individual self-image that is tied to their nation together with the value and emotional significance they attach to membership in the national community. Nationalism becomes public images of this, then. He also writes, and this has been talked about quite a bit by other people here today, about how nationalism nationalism is both a top-down and a bottom-up process. So it's both constructed from the top and also in everyday practice. National identity is contingent and constructed. In the Chinese case, this relates to the ways that nationalism adopts gendered traits. Some theorists from the West argue that the nation state is, in fact, the central site of hegemonic masculinity. For China, this is relevant. Since the late imperial period, views of the emasculi- emasculation or feminization of the nation in relation to Japan and the West have been prominent. And in the reform area, this has been reversed. Many theorists today write, or at least some theorists today, write on dimensions of China's contemporary hyper nationalism. So for theorist LHM Ling, hypermasculinity is part of China's integration into the global economy, hmm. which associates success with masculinized concepts of being powerful, progressive, or rich. Ling writes that at the same time, under, quote, the mantle of classical Confucian paternalism, the state locks society into a hyper-feminized position of classical Confucian womanhood that is into a role involving subordination, self-sacrifice, discipline, and deference. In this way, the state assumes that society consents to the imposition of the burdens and responsibilities of economic development without its receiving commensurate concessions to political representation or even a political voice. So society is feminized in relation to the state being masculinized, almost kind of For feminist theorist Dai Jinhua, Reform has involved the reconstruction of the patriarchal order and the idealization of a nuclear family. China's media has conflated Olympic, um, former Olympic hurdler, Leo Xiang, pictured here, with a masculinist national identity registering a rhetoric of confidence, ascendancy, and velocity that underwrites, underwrites the triumphant official discourse of China's economic vibrancy and vigorous prosperity. Xi Jinping, the leader himself, has come to be known, perhaps affectionately, but who really knows, as Xi Dada, or Uncle Daddy Xi, a Confucian patriarchal appellation for an autocrat. And this is a screenshot from a video that was out a few years ago that was about how Xi Dada Ai Je Pong Lama, as Mama, how um, Xi loves his wife, Peng, and it's a very gendered song if you look at the lyrics of it as well, in terms of the roles it puts them in. Meanwhile, new pressures have emerged to to enforce traditionally gender normative behavior for both men and women. For men, this occurs with conversations and pressures regarding junzi masculinity, junza as in the Confucian term. This junza is successful in business, has high moral standards, and is resolutely elite and male. Meanwhile, for women, the Confucian revival has led to the phenomenon of virtue schools for women, teaching traditionalist ideas about gender relations and sexuality. There are also new pressures in the last couple years on the LGBTQ community, indicating efforts to promote normative gender identities as part of cultural censorship, as it's called. These constitute new manifestations of CCP aspirations. That's not what that should say. I don't know why that says that. Um, Oh, it should say, um, sorry, the party is the custodian of authenticity. It's cut off at the top. These constitute new manifestations of Chinese Communist Party aspirations towards ideological and cultural hegemony, seeking a monopoly on moral truth, in the words of St. Anthony's own Vivian Shu. Yet there is continuing contestation and proliferation of alternative discourses in China as well, with critiques also of many of these trends found on social media and elsewhere. So for example, there was a vigorous critique of those virtue schools on social media, and some of them were closed as a result. Patriarchalism is thus not a monolithic discourse in China even now. And despite the CCP's best efforts, counter-hegemonic forces do exist. We can see the relation between gendered formations of Chinese nationalism and various forms of competitiveness that characterize what some would call neoliberal Chinese society. Evidence of what many call neoliberal governmentality Whereby individual selves assume greater degrees of responsibility for their own well-being and happiness it exists in all in many areas of Chinese society. So, for example, in China, discourses around suja, which this um, large propaganda billboard is about, suja is the term quality, have been central to post-Mao imaginings of social development. There's all kinds of discourses about raising your suja, raising your qualities, especially actually with respect to middle-class child rearing. The role of religion in changing subjectivities in China is particularly significant, given wide-ranging concern regarding the country's moral vacuum and the shift in Chinese society from collectivity to individuality. This is a picture that I myself took at the Lama Temple in Beijing, and if you look at the guy on the right, it's hard to see. His pants say, pray for surf, which I thought was amusing at a temple. You <laughs> <laughs> probably should go somewhere other than Beijing. If pray for to what? Surfing. Pray for surf, yeah. <laughs> um, as already noted, Xi Jinping has recently seemed to favor Buddhism and Taoism as Asian religions, saying early in his rule that he hoped that traditional cultures, including these religions, would help to fill China's moral void. Religion thus enters the frame as an ironic source of Communist Party hegemony, given long-standing official atheism and suspicion of superstition. In comprehending China's social and political development, It is thus vital to understand the ways that religion contributes to the shaping and reshaping of Chinese identities. By far the largest among China's five officially recognized religions is Buddhism, with common estimates fighting at least 250 million adherents in the country today. So on the one hand, with the support of the highest levels of the party state, Buddhism could could affirm Chinese nationalist identities. On the other, Persenja Dwara, for instance, writes extensively regarding how the sovereign nation is no longer an adequate political vessel for solving the intertwined problems facing the globalized capitalist economy and ecological Anthropocene, looking to traditions in Asia that encourage different methods and techniques of self-formation that can link the personal to the social, national, and the universal to counter the consumerism and nationalism of our times. Thus, Buddhism in China could be an alternative modernity, It features both parochial nationalistic elements, but also draws upon a cosmopolitan and universalistic cultural heritage. In my paper, I examine these tensions in the case of Beijing's Longchuan Monastery. Longchuan Monastery is located in Beijing's western suburbs in Haigian district and dates from the Liao dynasty around 957 CE. In 2005, it was reopened to the public under the leadership of Venerable Master Xuecheng. It has a close relation, especially with the information technology world, a lot of which is located in the Haidian district. Um, It's famous for this robot monk that it's developed. So far, there have been no sex scandals with the robot monk, surprisingly enough. It has a reputation as Beijing's intellectual temple, and it seems to have a sort of expansionist approach approach with a growing international presence. It has a very large translation team with like eight different languages on its website and things like that. Here I'm going to just offer a very, what we would call, first cut consideration of the relationship between Longchan's brand of Buddhism and Chinese nationalist subjectivities, drawing primarily from analysis of the speeches and writings of Master Suecheng. My question today primarily is, how do Longchon and Suecheng's ideas especially create alternative meanings of what it means to be Chinese amidst Hypermasculinist trends? Might it relate to what China calls its peaceful rise? Mm. And, in, and particularly, I look at Se speeches and writings, and in doing that, I particularly sought to contrast what he said to foreign audiences in foreign venues and what he said to Chinese audiences in Chinese newspapers and his writings in China to see if there's consistency of message or non consistency of message. And I basically found consistency. I here also, to some extent, compare Longchuan and Master Xuechang's ideas, especially with those of the Cici Foundation of Taiwan, one of Taiwan's largest civil organizations for a number of reasons. First, both claim to be um, pr- promoting a version of humanistic Buddhism, um, Second, Cici is very much a woman-dominated organization and middle, also a middle-class organization, with Long, which Longchuan also is a very middle-class temple from its influential and charismatic foundress Zhong Yan to female-dominated leadership and membership of Tzijie. Zhongyan explicitly asked Tzijie members to refrain, third, sorry, to refrain from political involvement while still composing an important part of Taiwan's civil society. And finally, and perhaps most importantly, Tzijie has created a strain in Taiwanese culture representing Taiwan, according to Richard Madsen, through the generosity of its caring rather than the power of its economy and military. Saji thus shows that Buddhist subjectivities can constitute a version of soft power with much more of an emphasis on the former than the latter, and one that creates a compelling counter-narrative to hypermasculine nationalism. So I'm sorry, Sometimes Master Swechang sounds virtually indistinguishable from Xi Jinping an unsurprising outlook for the president of the Buddhist Association of China. For instance, for both domestic and foreign audiences, he often discusses the need for a localization or indigenization uh, of Buddhism, relating it to local traditional culture as well as to reviving Chinese cultural self-confidence. Xiecheng also engages in the kinds of critiques of the West and the nature of globalization that we might expect from the Communist Party state often discussing the crisis of modernity and connecting it with the domination of globalization by Western culture. Xuecheng, Chung, however, often grounds these critiques in his readings of Buddhist philosophy, finding that the so-called clash of civilizations comes not from Western culture per se, but, the ways that in, but by, from the ways in modernity it, Western culture emphasizes a subject-object duality leading to, quote, self-aggrandizement, as well as materialism, egocentrism, anthropocentrism, ethnocentrism, and cultural imperialism. That's the garden at the temple, the organic garden. While it is tempting to regard such critiques of the West as Master Xuecheng pandering to his own masters in the party, in fact, they are not so distinct from those uttered on a daily basis by Western intellectuals on both right and left. Taiwan's Siji has also been driven by distress over the greed and selfishness of our world. And as noted, scholars like Prasenja Dwara are also interested in finding new forms of modernity to alleviate what he regards as the crisis of global modernity caused by these same sorts of greed, which Professor Victoria talked about last night. Xiecheng emphasizes how a perspective of the oneness of life can provide supportive values for a community of destiny in which human beings can coexist and a community of life in which man and nature coexist in harmony. So as to help China, he says, become a socialist, modern, powerful country. He thus here yokes Chinese nationalist rhetoric to Buddhist notions of interdependence. And he's not the only person in China or the West who has found commonalities between socialism and Buddhist principles, as a couple of people have alluded to. That are vital to Tsuji's version of um, concepts that are vital to Cici's versions of humanistic Buddhism, such as compassion and altruism and radical interdependence, are also foundation to long transmission. Xuecheng notes Buddhism's social responsibility as well as equal compassion all, for all to allow what he calls the sinification of religion to be an important cause of enlightenment for a new civilization of mankind. Thus, he seems to extend the Chinese-ness of his ver- version of Buddhism toward wider audiences, which may be interpreted either as sinocentric or as a more genuine version of compassion. This may also be extended to his teachings on Buddhist concept of the truth of dependent co co-rising and the emptiness of self-nature, as he once wrote about it to his followers on Sina Weibo, which is like China's Twitter. He said on Sina Weibo. Grasping itself is the root of all of our suffering. We compare ourselves with others. We care about gains and losses, resulting in envy, arrogance, hate, and other mentalities. Um, I'll just skip to um, the ways that um, these teachings do seem to impact individual subjectivity. So um, the followers of Longchuan, and this is the next part of my project. i am hoping to go there this summer to do a lot of interviews of followers. Um, three, uh, uh, um, th- about 300 people live in Longchuan Temple as full-time volunteers, and about 1,000 people come there every weekend on various types of retreats. Different people every weekend. Um, more generally, a Renmin University study of religions in China found that Buddhist temples contribute more on average to charity than China's other religions do. Zhecheng has also been a voice against the tendency and pressure to commodify Buddhist temples in China by turning them into profit-motivated tourist sites. He's written about this fairly extensively. He does not allow long-trans monks to receive a salary, and has argued that the gap between the rich and the poor has been the root of social problems the world over. Taiwan Suji also emphasizes charity and asceticism. At the same time, like tzu domination by women, Longchuan's volunteer membership is also about two-thirds female. Both Tzu-ji and Longchuan seem to provide equal opportunities for men and women to participate in their activities. That's the thing I need to research more. But um, in the research on tzu Julia Huang and Robert we- Weller found that tzu female leadership, as well as its emphasis on female compassionate figures such as Huan Yin, extend this positive ideal of womanhood behind the family to the world at large without calling it the specter of the negative image, which allows women to forge a new identity as mother to the world. Tran while of course led by the male monk, Xiu Chang, does seem to value some of the same traits as does Tzu Ji in its version of humanistic Buddhism, such as compassion and altruism. Thus the brand of Buddhism preached by Xiu Chang and practiced at Tran contains some of the same features of Tzu Ji's, which counter the competitive individualist traits of hyper-masculine nationalist subjectivities. The kind of compassion and universalism that many believe are needed in the age of the Anthropocene are themselves perhaps gender transgressive, asking a nation state to adopt generous and interconnected notions of itself. Buddhist practice could be one location then of social change, producing indirect political implications by creating new subjectivities and identities ones that are often more communitarian, as Madsen writes, than those nurtured under neoliberalism. These notions, I would argue, are also an important amendment to recent research that seeks to understand China's middle class and the absence of a democratic transition there. Some argue that the middle class's absence of interest in democratization in China is due to its dependence on the state and satisfaction with its overall social and economic status. Emergent Buddhist subjectivities are one way that members of China's middle class, at least some of them, adopt subjectivities that may not necessarily be pro-democracy, but still transcend self-serving greed, and even suddenly resist China's social and political order. Buddhism can constitute a form of resistance to Xi Jinping's totalizing national project, Mm -hmm. even as Xi himself claims Buddhism is part of that project. Mm -hmm. It does this both by creating a private sphere in a time when it would seem that Chinese Chinese statist ideology is at its most pervasive since the Mao era, and also by creating a potentially alternative ideology that stresses interdependence and universalism, traits that also counter aspects of China's hyper-masculine nationalism. It is, of course, natural to look at the seemingly endless harmful aspects of China's rise, from environmental degradation to increasing military power. But it seems also we should look for ways that Chinese citizens are carving out paths towards a more sustainable and harmonious future, even under the authoritarian leadership of Ci Dada. Thank you very much. <laughs>